welcome to Hazel and Katniss and Harry and Star, a young adult literature podcast, their filmic adaptations, and everything in between. I'm Joe. And I'm Brenna. All right, and we are talking about our second John Green text. We are doing Paper Towns. We are doing Paper, Paper Towns. Towns. It's our, fir- <laughs> our first repeat author, I guess, on the show. Yes. First of many, I'm sure, yeah. since so many of these authors are so prolific. Mm-hmm. And it seems like if you can manage to get one book successfully adapted and it's a reasonable hit, then you can, well, do what John Green has done and manage to get nearly every text you've published into either a movie or a TV show. True, but man, there's heck of a drop-off, hey? We're looking at how The Falcon Our Stars did versus how um, Paper Towns did. Yeah. Like a big yeah. drop-off. Maybe we could talk about why. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's basically a cultural milestone to, I think, traditional realist YA adaptation. Yeah, like, I don't mean that it was a failure of a, a film, I think it, but it hit around the same numbers as, you know, any other, as opposed to, yeah, the juggernaut that was Fault in Our Stars. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, but you're right, that is a good, interesting topic to dissect. Yes. I have thoughts. I have feelings. <laughs> Do you have homework? <laughs> uh no, actually, as you're mentioning it, I do not. I failed my homework assignment this week. Well, it's okay. I want to talk about a little bit about something that's blowing up Twitter, which is kind of silly because if listeners don't know, I think we've mentioned this before, but we're recording quite a few of these episodes in advance so that I can hide for most of the month of May. <laughs> so this is going to be a month old, I think, when you hear this podcast. But Yes, we're not timely. No, this is not timely, but I think it's still worth talking about because it gets at some of the sort of endemic, systemic racism in YA that is probably worth talking Good. about anytime. Yeah. It's our favorite topic. I know. So over Easter weekend, Heidi Hellig shared a story with permission of the person who it happened to, but the person themselves didn't want to go public. They were invited to a really prominent children's literature, like authors organization in DC. Okay. I think it's called the Children's Book Guild of DC. So the woman who was invited to join this organization, or I'm not sure if she was invited like just to this lunch or to join the organization as a whole. But anyway, this woman herself is indigenous. Okay. And she was invited and thought she was just like going to this lunch to meet other authors to like talk shop. And she ended up getting cornered by the person who invited her. wanting to have a conversation about the inviter's dislike of Debbie Reese. Debbie Reese is someone we've talked about on the show before. She runs a blog that looks at representations of Indigenous kids in children's literature. Oh, right. Yeah. Yes. We've drawn on her a few times in various conversations that we've had. Her site is really great. One of the things I like about her is she posts reviews, but if authors respond to her about the reviews, she'll include that information. So if, you know, she ends up in a Twitter conversation with the author where they come, whether they disagree or come to some kind of an understanding, she'll fold that back into the review. Or if a future edition of the book comes out where the problems that she's noticed are fixed, she'll add that back to the review. So she's really like, it's a really comprehensive site for thinking about Indigenous representation. Mm-hmm. There are quite a few white authors who don't like Debbie Reese. Yeah, I mean, shockingly, she's yeah. holding them accountable and taking them to task. Yes. Currently, as far as all the stories unfolding on Twitter, other currently unnamed Indigenous writer, this 
woman who has been named, she's been publicly named, uh, Jacqueline Jules, who had invited her to this event and then cornered her, basically wanted her to like disagree with Debbie Reese publicly or to sort of like atone for another member of her community who this woman doesn't like. This is uncomfortable. (laughs) I mean, it's super uncomfortable, but it gets worse. The woman had this indigenous author like cornered at this event and the author felt so uncomfortable that when she was able to get away, she didn't just like go back to her table and finish her lunch. She left. And this woman followed her for three blocks. What? Yeah. Telling her like, I just want to talk about this. I just need more information. Like, oh my God. And all of this was about Debbie Reese, like as though... This other indigenous woman owes you some explanation for an entirely different human being's blog and work? Oh my gosh. A, maybe the way that you're acting is emblematic of the problem that you're experiencing. You can't substitute one person (laughs) in for another just because they're a member of the same race. Hello, that is racism right there. Yeah, yeah, it really is. And also you're, you're stalking someone down the street. That's not okay either. Not okay. So apparently this Indigenous author, after a couple of days, she wrote a letter to the president of this organization to to say why she had left the event early and that she didn't feel like this was appropriate behavior. No. And the president of the organization shared it with Jacqueline Jules, the author who had cornered her. Great. Yeah. And so I think it's worth taking a minute to think about this little event that has caused a bit of a Twitter storm within the YA community. And think about what systemic racism really means, right? Like it Mm -hmm. means that spaces like this are completely unwelcoming. Like not only is this woman being asked to this event, apparently just to answer for another member of her community in a way that is completely inappropriate, but also when she draws those concerns to the attention of the president of the organization, the president of the organization responds again, totally inappropriately. Mm -hmm. You have a responsibility if you're going to invite marginalized people into a space to A, have good intentions about it. Like you're bringing this person in to hear what they have to say, not again, make them. Yeah, you're not there to ambush them. Yeah, you're not there to ambush them or to make them speak about someone else's work entirely. Like how offensive would that be too, right? You think you're there to speak about your work and really you're there because someone has a beef with someone who kind of looks like you. Like that's so so gross. So disingenuous and offensive. Yeah, but then when those problems are brought to light, you need to have policies and procedures in place to deal with that kind of race-based harassment if you want to say that your organization is open and welcoming and inclusive. Mm -hmm. And I think that this is something that a lot of white dominant spaces really struggle with. Like, first of all, this was a total tokenizing of this author to treat her this way, to treat her as though, you know, she's like this person who has to speak for everyone else within her community Mm -hmm. and to then disregard her concerns is equally troubling. And then the worst part is, The reason all this went public is because on Monday, the Children's Book Guild of DC named Jacqueline Jules, the author who had both invited this woman and then cornered her and harassed her for three blocks down the street. They named her their author of the day. Oh, great. And that would have been after this letter had been provided to the president and they would have had this information. 
So it's sort of an object lesson in how not to include marginalized authors in your writing community. I mean, it seems like it was initiated from a place of bad faith, just it's the story sounds like. Um, mm-hmm. But even when it's not initiated from a place of bad faith, I think members of white culture, in quotation marks, white society, white members of these kinds of organizations have a responsibility to look inwards and like really interrogate what they're doing. <laughs> Why have you invited this person here? What is your goal? And like, how are you making the space itself welcoming, inclusive? How are you signaling your willingness to listen? Because like, it seems to me that none of that happened in this scenario. No, not by the sounds of it. No. And I think one of the big issues is that I know, I think I've talked about this on the podcast, but if I haven't, I'll just repeat it or I'll say it again. I sometimes find that I don't either have the capacity or the knowledge to know how to properly conduct either formal interactions or I think as members of a dominant society, we are often made uncomfortable because we realize we don't know Mm -hmm. what we don't know. Mm -hmm. And then sometimes you find yourself in situations where you're like, I'm really afraid of putting my foot in my mouth. Mm. And you know what? That's an okay space to be in. Yeah, it's true. You know, I I hate to quote self-help guru Jillian Michaels, (laughs) but get comfortable being uncomfortable Mm -hmm. because... Part of this is that what we are then experiencing in those situations is what a lot of people in minority perspectives are frequently encountering, or they're experiencing the opposite, where they are put into these token positions and made to feel just like, okay, you are now an ambassador for every person, which like, can you imagine ever being put in that situation? The answer is no, no, we can't, because we have never lived that experience. No. Especially if you're thinking, okay, I want to invite this person to come into my classroom or, you know, I want to volunteer into certain communities. You know, I want to better myself by exposing myself to different kinds of practices. Think about your intentions. Think about what's going to make the other people comfortable. Think about how you can speak less and learn more or ask questions Mm -hmm. to make sure that you understand Mm -hmm. and just spend the extra time Mm -hmm. to think to think that's what I would encourage people to do and you know one of the things that is really upsetting about the story is that this didn't happen like outside the room the lunch was happening in like the author who shared the story said that this happened in front of at least 60 people none of whom stood up and said like hey how about you leave our guest of honor alone like hey how about Mm -hmm. you not do this here or like hey you're out of line and I think it's way too easy to turn away especially when the person who is behaving inappropriately, engaging in harassment, saying things that are offensive. When that person's a member of our own community or we see ourselves in them, it becomes hard, I think. But that the fact that it's hard uh, is not a pass. It <laughs> doesn't mean you don't have to do it. And any number of people in that room could have diffused that situation or mm-hmm. could have asked that Jacqueline Jules leave the event instead of the person who they had ostensibly invited there to talk about their work and experience. And so remembering that being a bystander is also part of the problem, right? If you're enabling Mm -hmm. the harassment to happen, then you also have something to answer for. So although Jacqueline Jules has been named as the person who was the harasser here, I think the entire organization has some soul searching to do. And obviously their president, like they clearly don't have policies in place to deal with harassment. 
And the number one thing I think that you need to do if you're going to invite people, if you're going to claim that your space is safe, is to make sure you have policies and procedures in place to deal with it when your space becomes unsafe. Apparently, this woman actually grabbed her. Oh, gosh. Yeah, don't put your hands on other people is another big, important life lesson for all of us. (laughs) Don't touch people without their consent. Don't follow them down the street. Yeah. You know, don't pass along sensitive information that they did not intend to be distributed. Like, these should be no-brainers, and yet I feel like we're constantly (laughs) having to rediscover... Yeah, I feel for that woman. Totally awful right on this issue of consent and touch so i was at this convention that i go to every easter weekend talked a lot about the podcast so if you're a new listener post NorwestCon, hi but one of the things that happened is i met up with someone who i usually do panels with and wasn't this year we weren't on any panels together so we made plans to meet up for coffee oh, nice. and we only see each other once a year in this space at this convention we don't know each other super well but we like each other's company like she's a costumer and she does these amazing costumes and it's just like I'm kind of in awe of skill. Anyway, she just said to me when we met up, she was like, hey, can I give you a hug? And I was like, that would be great. And it was really cool because A, you're making sure you have someone's consent before you touch them. And B, you don't have that awkward thing of like, are they going to hug me? Are they not going to hug me? Are we going in for this? Are we not? Which is like one of my least favorite social dances. So that's something I'm going to now bring into my life. I'm going to say like, hey, is it cool if I give you a hug? Yeah. And it can feel stilted and awkward. But here's the thing you're going to break that ice Mm -hmm. and then you're going to be able to move on. And also you have a better understanding of what a person does and doesn't like. I've had coworkers where I felt very close to them. We have a great relationship. I know that they do not like to be touched. Mm -hmm. So even though we're very friendly, I know that even if they're having a bad day, I'm not going to try to console them by giving them a hug. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting because I always felt like that would feel like an awkward thing to say. I've never said it to someone before, but I will say that being on the receiving end of it was not awkward at all. It was very pleasant. There we go. Yeah. So that's my little life lesson. Okay. <laughs> this is nice. It's, well, I mean, this is a terrible situation oh, to have to situation. unpack, yeah. but maybe someone has learned something. Yeah. Clearly not Jacqueline Jules. Oh, God. But. Her Twitter account like doesn't address any of what's going on, and I just want to be like, honey, just... If you're not going to post about that situation that everyone is talking about, then you also should not be posting about like random other stuff. You know, like if you're going to ghost, ghost completely. Just go radio yeah. silence. Yeah, take a social media time out. Because <laughs> now it just looks like you're ignoring a really serious situation as if you don't care about it. So <sighs> anyway. Anyway. Shall we talk about this book, Joe? Let's talk about some paper towns. Okay. So this is going to be an interesting conversation, I think, because I think Joe definitely did not like this, right? I am on the side of, I don't think I like John Green. Mm, That's a thing. That's a fair thing. Okay. It's hard to say out loud because I feel like (laughs) I've been put onto a list of people that other people will not like anymore. I don't know. I think in the wake of... The Fault in Our Stars. You know, anytime somebody gets really big, there's then like a backlash. And I think there's a pretty big population of people who are willing to talk about the problems in John Green's writing. And I Mm -hmm. will say, I do, like, I like his books. I find reading his books a mostly pleasurable experience. That doesn't mean that I always 100% think he's successful in achieving his goals. And that's definitely the way I feel about Paper Towns. Like, I really Mm. like the overarching message of the book. I'm not sure it's as effectively articulated as it could be boy howdy though did i find the movie boring 
<laughs> oh, yeah. I have completely different concerns about the film, but we'll get to that. So We'll get to that. Okay. Walk me through Paper Towns. Okay. So Paper Towns takes place in a suburb of Orlando, Florida. The main character is Quentin Jacobson. His friends call him Q. And Quentin is obsessed with his neighbor, Margot Roth Spiegelman. Uh, he always says her full name, Margot Roth Spiegelman. Mm-hmm. Because he idealizes her. He totally idealizes, idealizes her. Yeah, and he, but idealizes her too, right? Like she's on this total pedestal. And he yes. thinks of her as someone who he knows really well, but really what he learns over the course of the narrative is he doesn't know her at he all. He doesn't know her He at just all. knows his idea of her. <laughs> yeah, and that's the summary. Good job, Brenda. <laughs> So at the beginning of the book, you find out that when he and Margot were kids, like nine years old, maybe, mm-hmm. they found a body in their neighborhood park. They find the corpse of a local man who I guess had committed suicide. Yes. And so that's sort of where the book opens. And then we flash forward to senior year. We're, I guess, a month out or so from graduation. Yes. And in the intervening years, Margot and Q have basically disconnected, fallen sort of away from each other. But he still obviously knows everything she's up to. And he kind of assumes that she doesn't care about him anymore. She runs with a much more popular crowd. And she's always kind of off having adventures. She'll disappear for weeks on end to go and do something and come back with like amazing stories. In his imagination, she is a complete manic pixie dream girl. And she constructs herself as such. So Q, his best friends now in senior year high school are Ben and Radar. And they're kind of, they're not cool. They're in band, right? They get picked on by the jock kids, but they have a kind of sweet friendship, the three of them. I don't like Ben as a character. He's obsessed with sex and he calls all women honey bunny in a way that is both contrived and awful. Um, But I love Radar as a character. Radar's kind of great. Yeah. Radar's good. Radar's super smart. He's obsessed with this version of Wikipedia that exists in the novel's world called Omnictionary, I think. Anyway. Yeah, which I had no time for either. (laughs) It doesn't really matter till later anyway. Okay, so all of this is sort of the social network of the book at the beginning, and then all of a sudden Margot appears at Q's window, and she wants him to help her with these pranks that she has to pull. She's just discovered that her boyfriend is cheating on her, so she goes on a series of like revenge pranks that night against him the friend of hers he is cheating with, a friend who didn't tell her what was going on. Um, One of the jocks that has abused Quentin. Yeah. She also recognizes people who have been kind to her. And sort of it's like this whole kind of like unpacking of her friend group, which has basically imploded upon discovering this affair. They have this kind of moment together where you kind of think Margot and Q are going to get together, or at least Q really thinks Margot and Q are going to get together. Yes. And then the next day, she's gone. Mm-hmm. So after three days, she gets reported missing. And her parents are kind of like, eh, she's done this before. She'll do it again. We don't have any way of keeping control of her. It's exhausting. Being her Let's parent change the locks. is hell. We're just changing the locks. We're just going to focus on the one remaining kid, see if we can get her to turn out okay. Meanwhile, discovering what happened to Margot becomes a complete obsession for Q. Yeah. To the point of like it threatening his friendships because it's all he cares about while his friends are trying to get him excited about like prom and finding dates and like you know kind of normal senior year teenage stuff he can't he's just totally like unifocused on margot roth spiegelman and her disappearance Mm -hmm. 
But that's because she has left him clues. Yes. Also, he believes. So he believes. So there's a Walt Whitman book, or a Walt Whitman poem anyway. There's a picture of Woody Guthrie. There's like all these pieces that he puts together that takes him to an abandoned mini mall where he realizes she has been spending some time. And there he finds some maps. And this, I'm shortening this because this is about 200 pages of the novel. Yeah. of searching and putting these clues together. And anyway, they come up with this idea. Quentin figures out this idea that she's gone to Aglo, New York. Aglo, New York is a paper town or a copyright trap. This was not a thing I knew about before I read the book. I find this no. concept endlessly fascinating. So it's the idea yes. that to make sure your map doesn't get stolen by someone else, you put like fake towns in that don't really exist so that if another cartographer has that town on their map, then you know that they stole it from you. But this one place called Aglo, New York, was a paper town on such a popular map. It was on like the Esso map, I guess, that it got used and people asked about it so much that eventually someone like opened a general store and was like, well, now Aglo's a place. P.S. I'd rather read that book. I know, me too, actually. <laughs> I know. So they go to Aglo, New York to find Margot Roth Spiegelman. Ben and Radar go with... Quentin, as well as Lacey, Lacey, the friend of Margot's, who the guys realize is actually like a lot nicer and cooler than she had seemed before. Mm -hmm. She becomes Ben's honey bunny. Ooh, God, that word is so annoying. Take a shower every time we say it. <laughs> so they skip graduation in order to go and find Margot. And they get there and they discover that she's living in this basically old dilapidated barn and she's pissed off that they found her. She didn't want to be found. The clues were to let people know that she was okay and that she had a plan. She didn't expect anyone to follow them and find her. Mm -hmm. And she's super mad. So she and Quentin have this whole thing where he's like, but I'm in love with you. And she's like, mm, not really. You're in love with like an idea, the idea of, me. of who you think I am. And she's like, yeah. and so is everyone else in my life. She's like, I play this role. It's like, I just wanted to That's escape. why I had to leave town. <laughs> yeah, I wanted to escape to this paper town to try like not being that person for a while before I go to university in New York. And she's like, come to university with me in New York. And he's like, mm, I'm actually going to go to Duke like I planned and also spend the summer with my friends. And then they kiss and they say they're going to keep in touch, but then they go back to their own versions of what their lives are going to turn out to be. And that mm. is where the That's book the end. ends. Yeah. Yeah. So we, uh, <laughs> what do you want to talk about? <laughs> well, I'm going to sort of start at the end point, which is that I really like the overall message of the book. Me too. I think it's really important. And I think especially for teenagers, but especially, especially for teenage boys to learn to recognize the humanity in other people. I think that recognizing that we aren't just plot points in someone else's like other people aren't just plot points in our lives mm -hmm. right but like actual human beings who have their own will and their own desires and their own needs it's a really important developmental stage that you go through right and reading this from the perspective of someone who i was thinking about this when i finished the book these early years of parenting when like your kid can't do anything without you you stop being the protagonist in your life, right? Like he's the protagonist in my life right now. And it won't be that way forever, but it is for, for now. For a while. Yeah. <laughs> and so I think that that idea of recognizing the needs and humanity of other people is really valuable. Where I don't know if it's 100% successful in this book is I think Green was trying to say something about boys 
and this manic pixie dream type that they construct in their imaginations. But he doesn't give Margot enough to complicate that. So, like, the only version we know of Margot is the version that exists in Q's head, right? Like, we don't get to ever see. I think even if there had been, like, some flipped perspective where from time to time we got to see what Margot is actually thinking about all of this, it might have helped. Because at the end of the book, I felt like I'm being told that people are more complex than our imaginings of them. Mm -hmm. But Margot is... there's no evidence. There's no evidence. And, like... One of the things I appreciate about the book is that Margot is allowed to be like a totally flawed human being. Like she's totally selfish. She's completely self-involved. And that never, there's never a point where it's like, but actually she was a, she was good all along. She's still like, "Mm, come to New York with me. Like she's still completely self-involved at the end of the book. Mm -hmm. And because it's a book about not putting a potential sexual partner on a pedestal (laughs) that they can't possibly like succeed from i liked that she was flawed that way but i just don't think we get enough of her humanity to underscore the larger meaning of the text like it's like a book that's telling us that people aren't just types but the people in it are mostly just types oh yes you have hit the nail on the hammer because <laughs> this. this book is so tropey mm-hmm. like the character types are so they are just so familiar I mean, there, I'm not going to lie. There were many things that bothered me about this book. And I'm willing to give it props for the things that it does well. Mm-hmm. It's an easy read. John Green, he's a hyper-literate writer. He's very good at bringing in obscure references and making the character seem smart in mm-hmm. certain ways and dumb in others. Mm-hmm. But I felt like I had seen all of these people before, but not in a good way. Mm. Not like, oh, they're so familiar. It was like, they're so familiar. (laughs) I think that's fair. Even to the point where, you know, this book is about three male friends. And really, it's about Quentin coming to the realization that not just Margot, but everyone in his life is not there for the purposes of his narrative. Mm -hmm. This is a narrative about narratives. Mm -hmm. And yet... Because it's a story principally told from a bit of a dick character, mm-hmm. like Quentin's not the greatest of guys. He's a narcissist for sure. For sure. And he takes his friendships for granted and he takes his parents for granted. This is very much a process for him to come to some sort of state of adulthood. Like it's a good representation of those last vestiges of youth where you think you have everything figured out and at the end you realize, I'm kind of a dick. Mm -hmm. But the problem is is that it's so Mm male-centric, which is hilarious because I made the opposite complaint when we talked about The Fault in Our Stars. (laughs) But there's so little Margot in this and the only other female character that we really have is Lacey and she completely adheres to this idea that oh, she was popular, but she can change on a dime and become a great girl and a girlfriend to the band Geek and she's game for everything. And it's just like, no, man, that's another terrible female character type. The only thing I really liked about Lacey is that Lacey is there to show us that as wise as Margot thinks she is about people and their ways she doesn't really understand anything right so like she thinks that Lacey has been judgmental of her and basically calling her fat for their entire friendship and Mm -hmm. is like super judgmental of the way she eats and stuff and then what you realize once you meet Lacey is that like that's her own baggage (laughs) yeah that's Margot projecting stuff onto Lacey 
Yeah, exactly. But the problem is, is that that's all us doing the work、mm-hmm. because when they actually interact at the end, the conversation is maybe two lines,、mm-hmm. and then a phone call that we only get to hear Margot's side.、Mm-hmm. I agree. And then after that, it's just not addressed again. No, well, because ultimately, John Green doesn't bother、he's、himself with the female in their, friendship. In their friendship, no, no, he's not. So, an interesting kind of backstory to this book is looking for Alaska. Which we talked about as being the most problematic of the manic pixie dream girl. Yeah, books, right. Because in fairness, it, I mean, it was his first novel, and I think he wrote a fair amount of it when he was quite young.、Um, okay. And it's about his own prep school experiences. I mean, to a certain extent, fictionalized. And I think we will get to it because there's a Hulu series coming out, so it's probably going to be on the podcast eventually. But the major critique of looking for Alaska was. Wow, this is a really great new voice. He's got a kind of refreshing voice for YA. He's doing realist YA with male protagonists, which we don't see a lot of, and he's selling huge numbers, which again, as we talked about last day, we don't see a lot of with the male-centered texts. But、uh-huh. oh boy, is this girl ever a tragic manic pixie dream character? And in the next two books, Abundance of Catherines and Paper Towns, we really see Green trying but not succeeding to write his way away from that trope. He wants very much in this book, I think, to complicate the notion of the manic pixie dream girl, but he doesn't want to let go of what that role fulfills for Quentin. And I think、mm-hmm. there is something interesting to say about why the manic pixie dream girl persists. In the young male imagination, I mean, how many films do we have <laughs> about that trope, right? Oh, so many. So I think there's something interesting to say about why Quentin needs her to fill that role, but I don't think he ever gets there. And that was, to me, the frustration of the book: is that I don't know what I needed from it, but what I needed, I didn't get. Does that make sense? It does, because I I feel I think the same way as you do. It was never clear to me why Quentin has such a strong obsession with Margot,、Mm-mm. and you could argue that it's the prologue piece where they find the body, they have this shared traumatic experience that brings them together and then glues them over the intervening years, even as they grow apart. But I would actually argue that that's not the case. The point of them finding that body is the introduction of death.、Mm-hmm. You know that's the through line. The reason that Quentin becomes so obsessed with her is because he also needs to make sure that Margot is not dead. For him, she has to still be alive. Yes, this is exactly it, right? Because there's this sense, especially as they read through these highlighted passages in the Walt Whitman poem, that she's actually left them effectively a suicide note, and so that's the kind of complexity that motivates the search.、Mm-hmm. And you must have loved it as a. Teacher of English, when the English teacher says, "Oh, that's a misinterpretation of this poem." <laughs>、yes. Like you can't just read the poem in isolation、yes. and then misinterpret it according to your own whims. I was like, "Oh, Brett is gonna love that." <laughs> I will say, I think John Green had some good English teachers in his time because English teachers always come off real well in these texts. <laughs> and also, I mean, his use of illusion is really interesting and effective, and it shows a certain amount of. Trust and confidence in his young readers that they will follow the line of the illusion, and I think the same thing was true in *The Fault in Our Stars* with the way he uses Julius Caesar and Romeo and Juliet in that text. Like I think there are a lot of things that he does well, and I think one of the things that young readers respond to in his work, as they so obviously do, is that sense of being taken seriously.、Mm-hmm. 
but yeah, I just, I wanted that level of seriousness and that level of attention to make it to the actual trope he claims to be deconstructing. It's not enough to just say, well, women can't just be your manic pixie dream girl. You actually have to show me a woman in the text who's not just someone's manic pixie dream girl, right? And we never get that far. We don't. And I think part of the problem, I don't know, this is maybe me projecting, but to me, the book is at its strongest when Margot and Q are having their night of pranks. Mm. Partially because I think it really has a dynamic energy and almost a sense of electricity. Like you really don't know what does the night have in store. And that's because Quentin himself doesn't know, right? You know, Mm -hmm. he's a passenger, even though he's literally in the driver's seat. And there's something really interesting about that. And you're getting a sense that Quentin is realizing that Margot is not who he thought she was, Mm -hmm. which is great. And then we revisit the same idea it's like every time Quentin makes this realization that Margot is not who he thought she was and that he has been misjudging her and by extension, everyone else in his mm-hmm. life, including his parents, including his friends and all these other people, he then walks it back as though John Green does not trust us or the suggestion that the male teenage protagonist is so dense that mm. it's going to take you five or six tries. Like when I was reading this, so this is the first time read for me, I got to page 199 of this, what, 350 page book, mm-hmm. depending on which volume you're reading. Mm-hmm. And there's a passage where Quentin literally says to himself, Margot is not who I thought she was. She's somebody completely different. She is not this idealized, perfect person. She is a real person. She has her own thoughts and wins and so on, so on. And I was like, cool. Okay, I've been getting that sense. This is nicely synthesized. It's nicely laid out. And then there's almost (laughs) 200 more pages of that exact same thing. So I appreciate that you think that John Green trusts his young readers, but I would actually argue against that. I find the illusion so thuddingly obvious. Like the Ahab white whale nonsense bit is just so obvious. (laughs) I mean, remember that the illusions, these are illusions that you've seen a million times in literature, but if you were picking this up at 17, it would probably be the first time you had seen those illusions in literature. So I think that that's... And I appreciate you saying that because obviously it is a completely different experience reading young adult literature as an adult, (laughs) as as opposed to the intended audience. But I don't disagree with you about the back half of the novel. I think part of what Green is trying to do here is show us how difficult it is for Quentin to let go of that notion of who Margot is. This is what I'm saying when I say there's an investigation to be done here by an author who writes boys well to examine why. But that's not a question he ever gets to. Instead, we just repeat the what, but we never get to the why. Like, why does he need Margot? Why does this, I mean, otherwise completely well-adjusted kid obsess so hard about this one Mm -hmm. young woman and why is it that he needs to be told over and over again i mean he almost loses his friendship with i mean ben who cares he's awful but radar (laughs) he almost loses his friendship with radar because he's not able to see that other people have needs and that they don't just exist to serve his plot he is you're right terrible to his parents who are I mean, definitely well-adjusted. Yeah, they're both therapists and they definitely want to talk to him about these experiences and they want, I mean, part of the reason why Q comes through the dead body thing unscathed, where Margot is sort of profoundly damaged by it. And I mean, obviously Q is not unscathed, but 
up he, until Margot's disappearance. It. Right. And up until Margot's disappearance, right? Whereas Margot begins to act out socially from the moment she finds the dead body. Whereas yeah. for Q, it's basically this like sort of dormant thing until Margot's disappearance echoes too much of that for him. But that's because his parents are therapists, right? Like they dealt with the fact that he found a body in a way that we know that Margot's parents just never did. Mm-hmm. And yeah, he takes them completely for granted too and their capacity to make his life better. So I wanted more of the why behind the desperate need that he has to see people in these idealized ways and his inability to shake his own narratives of who folks are. I also think there was an attempt at some of that. There's like a power dynamic shift in the back half of the novel where because they have like this evidence from his night of pranks with Margot, they have embarrassing evidence about some of the school bullies. And so they're able to kind of turn the power dynamics around at the school and give themselves cred, which Ben uses to become a drunken idiot, basically. Mm. And land Lacey, for and lack of a better term. It's true. I felt like that could have been a place too. Like maybe those bullies are more complex individuals, but we never get that. Oh no. And I guess it comes back to what I'm saying. It's like, it's hard to have a novel that's all about people being more than their types when you don't allow anyone to be more than their type, including the protagonist. I mean, that makes it really difficult to Mm. connect with the larger theme of the text, which I, again, I think is a really valuable and important theme to talk about. Yeah. So I've been wrestling with this for most of the interceding week. So we knew that we were going to be doing this text when we were reading The Mm Stand-In last week. Mm -hmm. And we wanted to have a conversation about the portrayal of teenage male protagonists in YA because I think we were both so aggressively disinclined to like. Like we did not enjoy The Stand-In. But honestly, after reading Paper Towns, And John Green is so obviously a much better, more confident, more equipped writer. I still don't feel like we have a good example of an interesting, nuanced, three-dimensional male protagonist. Mm -hmm. I can't tell you anything about Quentin apart from the life lesson, like the moral message that he learns Mm -hmm. over the course of this book. I don't know who he is as a person. No, I don't disagree with you there. And I would argue that we didn't care for the way the stand-in was written, but at least we had a sense of, you know, gosh, I can't even remember his name. (laughs) Something Radigan? Brooks. Brooks, wasn't it Brooks? Brooks Radigan. There we go. At least we had a sense of what Brooks's ambition was and what he was trying to do and the, the issues that he was grappling with. I think part of my issue with Paper Towns is that Quentin... His whole journey is discovering that Margot and his friends are their own narrative agents. But as a result of the mystery scavenger hunt nature of the way that the book is written, Quentin himself, he's the same as them. Like there's Mm -hmm. a mystery to be found in the process of reading this book Mm -hmm. that never gets discovered because we don't really ever learn who Quentin is. Mm -hmm. So in a way, it's almost like it's a more problematic text than the stand-in. I think you're right. I think you're absolutely right because it has an ambition to do something more that it doesn't succeed at, right? Whereas the stand-in yeah. had absolutely no, no ambition whatsoever. Yeah, and managed to kind of achieve that. Yeah. yeah, apparently when you set out to do nothing, it's fine. I don't disagree with anything that you've said here. I mean, 
it was spent 117 weeks on the bestseller list, which is not, I don't, I'm not trying to claim that as a measure of quality. I'm curious. Yeah, but ab- it is something like something obviously connects. This is the thing. I'm curious about him as someone who can drive sales to mm. young people, including young men. Like I know there's a huge number of young women in John Green's readership for sure. I also know that there are young men in that readership as well. They do like a census of nerd fighteria, which is what they call the fandom every so often. Right. And if you want to learn more about this, please revisit The Fault in Our Stars. Where yeah, we where we talk about this. extensively about John Green's fan base. Yes. And I promise I'm not going there. But I do want to say that like consistently 35 to 40% of that fan group is young men. And that's super rare in YA leadership. <laughs> it is, right? Young Young guys tend to read pop fiction, like Tom Clancy-esque kind of stuff, and they tend to read nonfiction. They don't tend to read this kind of realist YA, but they do read John Green. Yeah. So why? <laughs> That's my question. It's, yeah. a, it's a genuine question. I know what young women are finding in this book. There's a lot about Quentin's obsessiveness over Margot, but also Margot's inability to be seen as a real person that would be very alluring to a 16-year-old girl, for sure. Mm. What is it that young men are finding? I'm imagining that they are identifying with Quentin, however horrifying that would be. (laughs) I can imagine people reading this and thinking, I feel like an outsider. I mean, one of the interesting things about Quentin within his friend group is that Ben and Radar are connected because they share band practice, and Mm -hmm. it's very important to them. And uh, they're also very interested in prom. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, Ben is interested in going for the social quotient, Mm -hmm. whereas Radar is going because he has a girlfriend who we have not talked about because really in the book, she's not all that important. Mm -hmm. But they have these shared sensibilities or these shared priorities in mind, whereas Quentin doesn't have, honestly, he connects with them because they play video games and Mm -hmm. because they bend friends. And that's an interesting situation for boy friendships as you get into your teenage years where you realize that you don't really have anything in common with other people outside of either a historical legacy or a single defining component. Proximity, right? A huge part of friendship when you're that young. And I mean, honestly, high school is such a weird kind of melting pot where you're spending all of this time with people that you probably don't really have anything in common Mm -hmm. with. And that's why people stick together in high school and then they separate the minute that it's over because Mm -hmm. you realize these people weren't really legitimate friends. It was like a forced confinement. Mm -hmm. And I can imagine that boys who are feeling ostracized or isolated or on the margins of that high school experience, Quentin might be a character that they could say, you know what, I see myself in this person. I want to be with somebody, but she doesn't see me, even though we used to have something that I can't quite define. I've got friends, but I feel disconnected from them. I have interests, but they don't feel like something that I'm really super invested in. Like he's a quintessential everyman, Mm -hmm. as much as that makes me feel icky because (laughs) I just don't enjoy him as a character. Yeah. I think that's me as an adult looking at him and saying, like, he's just so... Yes. There's Ben who contrasts him by being super horrible. And by proximity, Quentin looks slightly better. But in reality, Quentin's just a boy who likes a girl so much that he allows it to define his entire life. Mm -hmm. There's very little appealing about that character to me as an adult. No, for sure. Well, for sure. I mean, 
if you did find him appealing as an adult, it would mean there was something wrong with you, right? Like, this is a stage that you are supposed to grow through. And I guess this book is supposed to be about Quentin's first steps in growing through it. But Supposedly. it doesn't move far enough along over the course of such a long narrative for that to be satisfying for an adult no. reader, I think. Okay, before we move on to the film, though, I yeah. do want to talk to you about the ending. Okay. What do you think of the fact that he kind of ends up having another perfect date with Margot. So they literally bury the past, they have a kiss, and then they separate before anything real can happen. And they more or less go back to their worlds, but the book ends. Like, they yeah. have their kiss and they say, we're going to keep in touch. And we you know, know they're she's not. not. Yeah. And... You know he's going to try. You know she's not. <laughs> <laughs> But what do you think about the the decision to end it there as opposed to maybe cutting out some of the middle fatty sections and saying, this is what the rest of Quentin's summer looks like. This is how he treated people differently. Or this is what ended up happening to Margot. Like, would that have made for a better book, a different book? I think we might have gotten more of Quentin's growth if he had made that choice, which is far more like what the film does. Although I will argue when we talk about the film, not very successfully. Uh, no. But I really like the ending of this book because okay. of the way in which it, you're right that they have this perfect day together and they have this kiss that's really important to him as a way of sort of sealing off this adventure. It's almost, I mean, it's closure effectively. Yeah. But if you think about the tropiness of YA endings, he's resisting a lot of them here. Right? Like he's resisting setting up this narrative where Quentin pulls Margot back home, which is my was my worry the first time I read this book. Like the whole way through, I was like, oh, funny. I actually went the other way. Home. I thought that he would throw caution into the wind and just go with her. Go with her. Well, mm -hmm. either way, right? Those were the oh, two yeah. endings that you were expecting. Like yes. there's going to be some way after all of this journey and all of this sacrifice on Quentin. How do they not end up together? How do they not end up together, right? So I really like that Green resists giving us that ending. Mm -hmm. I think it's important to, I mean, if the overall message is going to be successful at all, Quentin can't expect Margot to change her plans or her life path for him. And he also can't do the same for her, right? If right. the whole lesson is like people have to be whole human beings on their own steam, there's no other way the novel can end. Mm -hmm. So I really like it. And I think... I think you're right. I think if we could have had more of the growth narrative for Quentin, I also would have liked that. You know, return back and see Quentin give his poor parents like a goddamn hug, um, for example, or like, or like interact differently with Lacey or, you know, let yeah. Radar make some decisions about what they're going to do to spend their time. You know, like, I think that those things would all be okay endings too but i like this ending i'm grateful that they don't end up together in any sort of weird fantasy wish fulfillment capacity as much as i i don't think the novel is entirely successful i think that would have undercut any <laughs> larger message about sort oh, of yeah. recognizing people for their own stories that probably would have made me pitch the book across <laughs> the room, to be honest I agree with you completely i think as far as endings go if you're not going to give us more more closure mm -hmm. to see where they go from there. I think this is the only ending. Sure. I was just going to say, I think Green resists those kinds of endings. Like even if you think about The Fault in Our Stars, right? That's true. We don't get it. We don't get Hazel's death. We don't know what happens to Hazel. Like we know she dies eventually, but we don't get any of that. We just get this like mm -hmm. 
So I think he he tends to resist those kinds of endings just generally. But yes, let's talk about the film. It made me super mad. My boyfriend has been cheating on me. Revenge plot begins. Not as weird as it looks. Stop. I can't believe you just did that. Take the picture now. Hey, now that was fun. I can feel my heart beating in my chest. That is the way you should feel your whole life. It's beautiful. It's a paper town. Paper houses and paper people. Everything's uglier up close. Aren't you? Are things gonna be different in the morning? I really hope so. Margot always loved mysteries. Maybe she loved them so much, she became one. She's gone. When was the last time you saw Margot? You were with her her last night. It has to mean something. There's something in Margot's window. She left little clues, like breadcrumbs. I found something. I think she's sending you a message. Come find me. We're trying so hard. Okay, so the film version of Paper Towns comes out one year after The Fault in Our Stars. And if you think that that timing is not suspicious, then <laughs> boy, do I have some land in New York and cartographer's map to sell you. <laughs> so this is a film adaptation that stars Nat Wolf. He actually played a small role. He was the blind friend in The Fault in Our Stars, yes, which was. I had completely forgotten about, which lets you know what kind of impact he made in that movie. And we have me. a reverse cameo in this movie with Ansel Elgort, or however you say that guy's name. Yes, as the cashier on the route. Yeah. <laughs> So this is directed by Jake Schreer, and he was not significantly notable at the time that he made this. He had one previous feature that was a festival hit, but it hadn't really done anything for wider audiences. So this was a big deal for mm. him. And the screenplay is written by Scott Nudstatter and Michael H. Webster, and they are the same two who wrote the adaptation of Fault in Our Stars. Which surprised me. Yes, because something happened in a year in between that made them completely miss the point of this new text. So it stars, as I mentioned, Nat Wolf as Q, British actress Cara Delevingne as Margot, and we've got Austin Abrams, who I don't know from anything, as Ben, Justice Smith as Radar, Halston Sage, which has got to be one of the best names ever, as Lacey. And then Angela gets a big upgrade. She's played by Jazz Sinclair. And really, there's nobody else. Like, this movie is not populated by notable people, nope. which you could make the argument is one of the reasons why it doesn't break out quite the way that The Fault in Our Stars does. Yeah. It doesn't have that it couple status that Shailene Woodley and Ansel Elgort were on the cusp of delivering when they made that film. It also doesn't have any meaty parent roles. So there, you can't stack the adult cast here. There's no, no meaty parents. There's no meaty teachers. All of those important adults, as they exist in the book, completely disappeared from the film. And so, I mean, you can't stack the decks that way either, which we see so much of in YA. Yeah. Because usually, even if you don't give the adults much to do, that's almost easier to attract an A-lister. You know, I'm thinking mm -hmm. of Easy A, where we had Patricia Clarkson and Stanley Tucci. They showed up for a couple of scenes, but then 
Like, really, they weren't given that much to do. But every time they did, they were a delight. And you could use their presence to bring in a different kind of audience who would say, oh, I like those people. Mm-hmm. Or I at least know that there's a bit of an anchor with, you know, some respectability in terms of the actors. Because, mm-hmm. of course, young actors are often given short shrift by people. Yep. Who knows what you're going to get with young actors. Yep. We've alluded to it, so why don't we begin with the end? <laughs> So in the film version, there's a couple of big differences. A lot of the investigation plot points are distilled so that we can get through them a lot more quickly. After their night together, Margot disappears like she does in the book, but then Quentin and his friends very quickly, like it seems to take place over a matter of days as opposed to weeks. Yes. And rather than focus on prom and have prom as like the big party that distinguishes Quentin from Ben and Radar, we use a party mm-hmm. instead. And then the big event that they're missing is actually, they need to get back in time for prom. Mm-hmm. So graduation is actually off the table completely in the film version. We spend a little bit less time on the road. And the biggest difference I think to me is that Margot is a completely different person in the film. She's quite a bit nicer. Yes. She doesn't argue or bicker with any of them. Q happens to find her on happenstance. Like he just is walking on the street and sees her. So it's not even as though he finds her. They have a lovely conversation over milkshakes. And then he returns back in time to meet with his friends who he has argued with at this point. And the film ends in the quintessential teen film slow motion prom yeah (laughs) i hated the ending of this movie so it's all about the prom okay here's a number of things that suck about this ending yes so in the book the reason that the road trip stakes are so high is that they found in the talk page on an omnictionary entry this comment from margot that leads them to believe she will be leaving aglo new york on the 29th of may so yeah, they, have they have to skip graduation. Hours. They have 24 hours to make this like 23-hour drive or whatever. And so the stakes around timing are really, really high. And that's some of my favorite stuff in the book is just like, you know, them negotiating like, okay, our stops and our like, it, the road trip drama is quite funny and well-constructed in the book because mm-hmm. it's on this really, really tight timeline. Yes. In the film, they just have to get back before prom. So. Yes. You don't even really, I didn't even realize they were in a rush at all until for some reason they can only take six minutes. So in the the book, they have to take six minutes at the gas station because that's literally all the time they have if they're going to catch Margot before she leaves. In the film, they're like, okay, we have six minutes. And I'm like, why? Why do you Mm -hmm. only have six minutes? Like, I don't understand. Because obviously prom is far enough away that Q can take a bus. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like he can take the Greyhound bus. After they leave in the van and still make it in time for prom. Yeah. And in time for like his mom to dress him and like for them to have this important moment together. So like there's no urgency in the road trip. So that's the first problem. Yeah. Is that it takes away because they bond over that urgency, right? Other than Lacey, the rest of them don't really care about Margot. They want to help Q solve this problem. And the timeline, the tight timeline makes it like this bonding experience. Yeah, because they have to make a decision because Q is literally leaving. He's like, I can't stay for graduation because I found her and I need to go. And they decide at that moment, unlike him, 
their friendship with him mm-hmm. is so important that they will leave graduation at that very moment and yes. they call their parents on the car ride up. Yes. And Radar has calculated that time frame because that's a defining trait of Radar in the book is yes. that he's hyper intellectual, but he's also kind of OCD. Mm-hmm. So one of his responsibilities in the car is to figure out exactly how long they have at different stops and where it'll take them and where the traffic congestion is. And the Radar in the film has none of that. <laughs> So the the timing is inconsequential and Radar is basically just a guy with a girlfriend who wants to lose his virginity. But then instead of dropping the whole conceit of the time limit, they still do things like they make Ben P in the jar and they do this six minute pit stop and none of it makes any sense. Because no, but no Brenna, that is so hysterical because boys peeing is an American <laughs> classic. I, I sent that text to you while I was watching it because... Hate society. I used to watch films with my sister when we were growing up. We would watch a lot of movies together. And she began to complain about how often she was forced to see boys pee in movies. And it never even connected with me until you start to pay attention. Think about how often you see boys pee in movies. (laughs) It's true. The number will shock you. And apparently it's either the funniest thing ever or it's like, it's either that or it's a drunken thing or sometimes both. You're yeah. not wrong. You're not I am wrong. not wrong. No, My I sister, she had a wise eye for this strange, unique detail. So that's the first part that I hate about the ending. There's no stakes at all. Mm-hmm. The second thing I hate about the ending is that you don't get, I mean, what little closure we get in Margot's relationships with the other characters, we get none of in the film. So it is completely distilled down to a romance plot as opposed to uh, people finding themselves plot. Mm-hmm. The fact that it ends at prom when so much of the book is about... Okay, so I get annoyed with the superficial, shallow, ugh, parties and drinking are so bad narrative that goes on in the book. Like, there's very much a, like, we've already been... We've been cast out, and so we cast the out in response kind of thing with these characters, right? Well, it's a very uncomfortable masculine position where... It's another reason why I didn't enjoy Quentin. And yeah, it's probably a little bit because I identify as queer. But yes. he's he's very much like, God, liking prom is so like not a man thing. Yeah. Oh, I found your testicles because you care about prom. Yeah, there's a yeah. lot of casual homophobia and a lot of dropped R words. We haven't talked about that either. That thankfully does not survive into the film version. No, so. and both things I should say, John Green has apologized for and has talked about how he actually said, especially about the issue of the R word, but also about the casual homophobia, that he could go back and rewrite the book. He wouldn't use dehumanizing language in a book that's supposed to be about people seeing each other's each other as human beings. Right. So I think that demonstrates something of a growth trajectory, but it is very jarring to read the book in 2019 and have that experience. It was published in 2008, which doesn't seem like that long ago, but man, some cultural norms shifted fast. Yeah, thank goodness. Thank goodness. Um, but back to prom. But back to prom. But... but the only thing I hate more than the stereotypical shallow, like everything that other teenagers care about is stupid kind of line in the book is prom is the most important thing ever in the movie. Mm-hmm. Like, well, really, because it's oh, a, so it's, cringy. it's just a different variation of this idea that you end up having to have a romantic partner at the end of these films, right? Yeah. Like prom is just a different version of that idea. Like yeah. if you don't go to prom, you have missed a seminal moment of your high school or, you know, teenage experience. And it's just another piece of BS. It is. And part of what's important about the book is that 
they reject sort of the trapping of adulthood in that they don't go to graduation as this sort of, they don't see the graduation as like this important moment in their lives. Like they're rejecting mm -hmm. that sort of commencement kind of concept. Like we're starting adulthood with this graduation. They're rejecting it and sort of starting adulthood on their own terms with this road trip. And yes. so the book, or the movie subverts all of that <laughs> by just having prom be the most important thing. Mm -hmm. And a slow motion prom at that. And like, I know uh, I said this when we talked about the so standard, tired. but like, as someone who didn't even go to her own prom, it's exhausting to watch all these proms. Like, mm -hmm. like I didn't... And as someone who went to two proms, <laughs> You've had it's enough exhausting prom. to revisit. <laughs> <laughs> and I get that prom matters. Like I do. I'm not pretending I don't think it matters to people. Obviously it does. But it's also, I don't know, man. Like I really try to not use trope as a dirty word because tropes aren't positive or negative. They just are. Yeah. But there are some tropes that have been exhausted and I feel like we are out of interesting things to say about proms. Like mm -hmm. I really do. <laughs> I mean, I'm not going to lie. That was one of the reasons why I so appreciated <laughs> having a ridiculous event in every single episode. <laughs> true. There's nothing precious about these events. <laughs> no, they used it as an episode event. Like mm -hmm. they... I, I forgot to say it on the actual episode, but the showrunner said, oh yeah, we use these big milestones in every episode in the way that a procedural crime series uses like a murder or a trial. He was comparing it to Law and Order. I kind of love that. Right? And yeah. it's, it's one of those things where when you then watch Paper Towns that ends with this stereotypical slow motion, me and my friends are at prom and suddenly everything is perfect and great. And you just think, no, man, this is just another event in your life. And to pretend otherwise is facile, and it goes against the entire point of this film or this book more purposely. Yeah, I agree with you completely. And just the fact that the prom is in slow motion is just insult to injury as far as I'm concerned, just from a <laughs> cinematographic standpoint. Like, what are you doing? Yeah. I mean, I would argue... I mean no disrespect to Jake Shear or the other people who worked on this film, but this film is agonizingly boring visually. It's so visually. boring visually. It's so boring visually, and it's so boring. There's zero chemistry between Margot and Q in the film. No. And I... I blame Nat Wolf for that, to be honest. His performance is so dull. He's so flat. He's so flat. He's not a character that I'm rooting for. I mean, Quentin's already... A difficult character to root yeah. for but at least in the book he's kind of unlikable like they're working through it whereas yeah. in the film he's so boring that i feel really terrible for saying this but the reason that i was like well maybe margot doesn't notice you because you're just dull you're aggressively bland but i also don't this is mean i don't think cara de Levine is a very good actress like i've never seen her in anything where i was compelled by her at all and if the whole point of margot roth spiegelman is that she is she's a miracle she's everyone wants to be around her she's so magnetic she's so interesting that's not this girl so that's interesting that you say that because i was actually about to pivot and say that i think she's arguably the best thing about the movie interesting 
I would agree with you that I do not connect with her in her other roles. This is principally because she's often typecast as a ridiculously attractive woman because she is a former model. Mm. And the films that then hire her use her for her body. Mm -hmm. So I think one of the reasons that I liked her in this role is because she's actually just playing a normal person. She's obviously meant to be ridiculously attractive and, you know, the cream of the high school crop. But there's always that character in all these films. I mean, you could argue that the actress who plays Lacey, Halston Mm -hmm. Sage, she's also, you know, ridiculously attractive, like model-level gorgeous. Which is hilarious, because you look at the boys, and apart from Justice Smith, I'm sorry, but Nat Wolf and (laughs) Austin Abrams, they ain't lookers. Like, I don't get it. Ansel Elgort, to me, is the same thing. Like, these are aggressively average-looking human beings. I don't understand it. Well, I'm... (laughs) I'm going to break it down for you. White teenage boys yeah. all look the same. Yeah, they do. I can't tell old white men apart either. <laughs> like, I don't I don't know who is who. And uh, no, but there's something so bland about these young men in these films. And I, I don't know, maybe the same was true of the young men from our era. But I don't, I don't buy any of these dudes as heartthrobs. Like, I really don't. I mean, I guess in defense of this particular film, if we can find a beacon of light in the darkness. It's the fact that they're not actually meant to be heartthrobs. So the fact that they don't look like studs. I mean, the jock guy that they take the picture of, you know, when he showed up, I was like, oh, wow. Okay. So they cast like a beefcake with a nice body and, you know, he looks like a model, but thankfully he's in it for a hot second. And then he's (laughs) shooed away to the side. And no, you're right. That's not the point in this film, but I get, I'm just thinking about it as like all of these films that we're looking at was like a genre. Like I just, I don't, I don't get it. <laughs> no. Particularly the more traditional realist YA romance stuff. Yeah. They, oh, yeah. The dystopians seem to know how to find hot people. <laughs> but yeah. yeah, I don't get <laughs> they it. They just can't find a plot to save their lives. But <laughs> but I, it's interesting to me that you don't enjoy Cara Delevingne. I mean, her performance is unusual. It almost sounds like she doesn't speak English as a first language and she's learned her lines slightly phonetically because of the odd way that she's delivering it yes but I interpreted that as her attempting to be mysterious oh okay I don't know there's I guess there's an enigmatic quality to her that I wasn't getting from anybody else so she felt unique compared to what everybody else is giving me which was straightforward flat Mm. disaffected Like, she at least seems to be bringing a different kind of energy to the film that I appreciate. I can see what you're saying there. I think part of what I'm rejecting is the filmmaker's or screenwriter's decision that in the film version, Margot Roth Spiegelman had to be likable. Yes. And it's so crazy because if you, again, if you had just watched the film and not read the book, I'm sure that this probably wouldn't bother you as much. Yeah, but I'm sure. But it's a huge betrayal and a gross misunderstanding of the character from the book. Well, and it's one of the few very interesting things that John Green is doing successfully and sustaining through the whole text. Mm-hmm. is that his... To the point that we want more of her in yes. the book. Yeah, is that his female lead isn't particularly likable and how rare is that i mean look at all the books we've read so far right so freaking rare so i was really disappointed by that and maybe that's really what i'm rejecting is that the role itself is something different than what i needed it to be for the film to be successful from my perspective Mm -hmm. i agree with you i will point out to you joe that cara delavine has a ya novel out so 
Does she? She does. So mm. uh, it's called Mirror, Mirror. Oh. Mm-hmm. Could I... <laughs> Do I need to guess what it's about? I mean, probably not. She's very proud of it because it, quote, contains an LGBT theme. Oh, how nice for her. <laughs> so, I mean, when it's inevitably adapted, I'm she will be reading it. <sighs> you know, you threaten me with things like this, but don't forget that after has come in theaters. Ooh, oh, no. That's how the journey. It's in theaters and... <laughs> It has not done well, which means it will be on Netflix VOD two ever seconds. so shortly. Oh my god, Joe, I was at Starbucks and I like walked out. So the Starbucks that I go to on the way to work is in this outdoor transit mall, basically. And there's a movie theater on one side of the SkyTrain track and a Starbucks on the other. Okay. And I walked out of the Starbucks and they were just putting up the after posters like two weeks ago. And I, mm. I, it was all I could do to not fall to my knees and scream, No! How dare you threaten me this early in the morning? Uh, anyway. <laughs> yeah. Um, I I feel like I should have more to say about this film, and I don't know that I do. I'm, I was disappointed in the ending. I was disappointed in the lack of any chemistry, or really any, and I don't just mean sexual chemistry between Margot and Quentin. I mean, oh. like, any chemistry between any of these people at all. Like, uh-huh. why are they friends? Nope. Honestly, I spent the entire film being like, these people don't even like each other. No, they don't. <laughs> they don't give off an aura of friendship at all. I think the only scene that convinced me otherwise is when they sing the Pokemon theme song, which yes. a bunch of people, when I said I was watching this on Twitter, yeah. they were like, oh, that scene when they sing the Pokemon theme song. It's like, there's a reason that's the only part you remember. <laughs> yeah. the only compelling part of the thing. And there's it's that's so a great moment because you see also what you see in that moment, which echoes strongly from the book, is the much more immediate bond between Ben and Radar and the way Q is on the outside of that, right? Like, mm. it takes quite a while for them to convince him to, like, come on board with the singing. And there's yes. something in that short scene and the dynamic there that is completely <laughs> absent from the rest of the film. Yeah. Did you appreciate how they tried to hold over the jokes that they always do? So in the book, they have a tradition of mounting jokes on top of each other. So mm-hmm. one of them will say, oh, you know, if this happened to me, I would die. And then the next one would say, oh, if that happened to me, I would die. And my ashes would be shot into space or so yeah. on and so on. Yeah. That's not a great example. But. No, but it, it works in the book on that teenage banter level like i could i could hear those jokes and the way Mm -hmm. they layer and the way they're only funny because you already have an intimate connection with the people with whom you're making the jokes yeah it's dumb but inherently believable yep and then i think they do it (laughs) maybe once in the film with the fear i think it's actually right before they do the pokemon Pokemon. song yep and i was watching it with my mouth completely wide open because i was like i don't understand what they're trying to do here because they haven't set this up at all so it just seems stupid i literally put my cushion over my face and have like a deep cringe reaction to that scene yeah because without any intimacy there's no humor like the humor of that moment exists in the intimacy and the fact that you know that those people have made those same jokes nine million times before and that it's about bonding between them as people and when you don't have any of that in the film otherwise it's just uncomfortable what's because in okay so i did my usual thing where i looked at the differences between the book and the film and there were a couple of really obvious things that i kind of forgot completely about when i was watching the film mostly because i was bored but they cut out the two signifiers of friendship 
that the three of them have in the book, which is the video games and the IMing, the instant messaging. And neither one of those are present at all in the film. So if you think about it, the number of times that the three of them connect because they're either over at each other's houses playing video games or they're instant messaging about prom, about Quentin's new clues or whatever. To remove all of that in the film means that the only interactions we ever get is when they're face-to-face, typically at school, right? Yep. And we then have Lacey or Angela supplanting focus by talking about prom, more or less, or having sex, or going to a party. All right, so why bingo? Bingo! Not a good bingo. Yeah, let's do it up. We've complained long enough. We have complained long enough. Mine is author cameo. Oh gosh, again? Yeah, again, when you hear the father yelling in Becca's house because Becca's having sex in the basement in the film version, that's John Green's voice. Oh gee, how am I supposed to do that? <laughs> Listen to more podcasts, my friend. I will not. I told you, <laughs> I am not a fan. <laughs> Fair. Okay, I'm going to steal the most obvious one, which is Manic Pixie Dream Girl. Yes. But also rich people problems. Rich people problems. Where they tried to talk live? about how much money it cost Quentin to go on this trip, and yeah. I was not having any of it. And didn't believe any of it. Nope. Also, I think ideal parents, they don't get enough cred, but Quentin's parents are great. They're pretty good. Yeah. I like the fact that they don't ever become villains. Like, they don't have anything to do, but they're also not treated badly. Yep, that's true. Yeah, and then... That's it. That's all I got. Yeah. I don't know. For for such a weirdly tropey book, this film didn't really hit any of our bingo slabs, did it? Well, it's because without a love triangle, that's its one major resistance to trope, is that it's focuses on a mystery instead of a love triangle, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Speaking of mysteries and love... Mm-hmm. Uh? 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 We're reading Virgin Suicides by Jeffrey Eugenides next week. Which I am on the fence about whether or not I'm going to call it a YA, but my understanding is that the film resonates very strongly with teenage audiences, so I'm going to keep giving it a go here. Yeah, this is an interesting combination. So we're doing it because the film, directed by Sofia Coppola, is celebrating its 20th anniversary. And yeah, I actually am also hesitant to classify either text as YA. Mm -hmm. It deals with teenagers, but it's written and directed from a very adult perspective. So I'm Mm -hmm. interested in having that conversation. Texts that are straddling the line between audiences. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you have thoughts on that or on Paper Towns or on anything else, you can find us on the social medias at hashtag HKHSPod if you want to chat. Mm-hmm. Uh, Joe, where can they find you? I am at B still my remote. That's the letter B. And I'm at Brenna C. Gray. That's gray with an A. And if you have a longer diatribe that you would like to send me about how great John Green is or, <laughs> you know, something about the male protagonist in YA, you can send it to us at hkhspod at gmail.com. Please no John Green slash fic. Joe no. will die. <laughs> I uh, and until next time, I'll see you on the page. And I will see you on the screen. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.